Okay. Hello there. Hello. We're on schedule this week. I know. <laughs> but we're doing it in the morning, which is odd. Yeah, so we're having coffee. But coffee. Julie brought me coffee, so it was exciting. If we didn't have um, time to do mimosas or anything like that fancy-like stuff, so... This is we're doing coffee and Americanos and wraps. But welcome back to Mysteries, Murders, Monsters, and Your Mom. Yep. I'm Julie. Moms need coffee. All the All time. the coffee. <laughs> yeah. I'm Nicole. Uh, we're the moms. This is our podcast. And yeah, we're again. Like Nicole said, we're on schedule this week. Woo! And yeah, hopefully uh, you don't hear a dog in the background. Poor Brody is having a... He's having a morning. Yeah, he's old and terrible kind of but he's my boy and he just gets upset when people are here and he's not the center of attention so, yeah no you know. he's he's a sweet dog it's but like, it's like children but the dog causes noise sometimes and you know all the dogs i can't send him to the room and say go watch a show while mommy does her podcast <laughs> I know. doesn't work so well with dogs <laughs> i know thankfully my kids went to uh my aunt's house because it's been like two weeks since they've seen them so nice. she offered to keep them overnight. It's like, okay, <laughs> done. Although I did nothing interesting last night because Jared ended up working until like 930, which sucked. And I got a good tequila at the liquor store last night. And nice. I was like, I am going to remake that margarita that we had from that taco place oh, in Philly. Right. And I did it. Oh, yay. Somehow I did it. Like that I, was the best margarita. Oh, my God. It was so good. So I drank that. And by the time he got home, I was, like, kind of sleepy. And then we showered. And we're like, okay, well, let's put on a movie. So we put on Equilibrium. Do you remember that movie? I do. <laughs> so we started to watch it. And I'm, like, sitting up, like, on the couch. And, and I don't really remember. But all of a sudden, Jared's, like, shaking me. And I was like, what? And I'd fallen asleep sitting up. <laughs> We chaperoned a high school dance last that night. That sounds like so much more fun than no, everything really, I did. I don't, I, I don't know about more fun, but it was interesting. And we got home and we were... Um, did they do cool dances? They were doing cool dances. Yeah. Because they were doing all of the... They did like a post-Halloween. It was a Halloween dance. So they were doing um, all the cool dances from... Like um, Thriller? Like Thriller and Rocky Horror Picture Show oh, and stuff. Yeah. They were great. They, That's it was really cool. cool. But yeah, so we, um, I put up a giant Christmas tree at work yesterday and he ran a 5k and then we chaperoned a dance. So we were pretty all just like tired, Yeah, but I was like awake mentally, but my body, I just couldn't move. (laughs) Like stop it. So we watched old episodes of the (laughs) X-Files. So my TV basically was like, you're done with this. So from the time I, I dropped the kids off, I came home. I could have cleaned. I didn't. I made a margarita and I sat on my ass. And started knitting. See, now that's uh, and it's perfect. And I, uh, I put on the holiday baking championship because I finished the mm. Halloween one. So I was like, well, let's start from the beginning of the holiday one, and then I'll watch the new one. But from like I'd say about four thirty to about eight o'clock, that's what I was watching. And I went to like warm up my dinner, like I just ate some leftovers, and it shut off. My TV was like, you're done. Yeah, no more. <laughs> like, You've you're done. <laughs> We sense a problem here. You need to stop. <laughs> I, didn't... I would tell your TV to uh, suck it. I know. Like, <laughs> damn it. Like, I'm almost Don't to judge the me. almost to the finals of the second season. Leave me alone. That's what my seven year old says. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Okay. Anyway, let's do our sponsor break, and we'll be back. Hey, fellow moms and listeners, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? 
Well, Nicole and I are here to tell you how. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make pod to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, so this week, um, as I was telling Nicole, I'm doing a story that it's not about uh, mysteries or murders or any of the things that we typically talk about, but it is kind of morbid because it talks about death, so I guess that's where it kind of fits in. I, Maybe? I, you told me there were bodies, and that's... Yeah, yeah. there's there's bodies. bodies is, that's good enough. So, um, this is more of a morbid curiosity on my part. And I have my husband, Jared, to thank for this <laughs> new, weird, kind of semi-obsession. Um, he's, he's a pretty avid outdoor guy, um, and he introduced me to the thing that I'm gonna, that I'm gonna discuss. Like, he's the one who brought this to my attention, and I was like, what? And then I fell down a rabbit hole. Mm. I couldn't stop reading about it. There's a ton of documentaries. There's, like, YouTube videos. And I, I went down a rabbit hole that was, I was like, okay, this is, this is just weird. I gotta stop looking at this shit. This <laughs> is not right. Hole, like, what's that, what's that website about, do you remember? Maybe, and maybe it's not a thing anymore, but if you wanted to find, like, crime scene photos, mm-hmm. what was that called? I can't remember, but yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. But that's what I felt like I was doing, and yeah. I was like, no, I gotta stop doing that. So I'm gonna talk about Mount Everest, and more specifically, those who have died on the mountain and are still there. Yes. Because that's the part that I can't get over. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Mount Everest in case, you know, you don't know what Mount Everest is, um, or you just don't know that much, whatever. So Mount Everest stands at 8,848 meters, or for us Americans, uh, 29,029 feet high above sea level. It's located within the Himalayas and lies on the Nepal-China border, and it's considered the tallest point above sea level. It's covered in rock, ice, snow, and at any given moment, uh, the weather can change from clear and sunny to super cold with massive snowstorms in a matter of minutes. So it's very temperamental. Yes. Um, excuse me, that was a weird sound that came out of my throat. <laughs> Humans have been attempting to summit Everest ever since uh, the 1920s, and in more recent years, climbing Everest has become far more popular. And it's not just for experienced mountaineers anymore. You have a variety of individuals deciding that they have what it takes to summit and survive. Mm-hmm. And it creates a dangerous thing. Um, so it not only takes months to summit, but it also costs anywhere up to $50,000 to fund a whole trip, if yeah, not really more. Expensive. Yeah, it is not. This is, yeah, it's, and there are people who do it. Like there, I, people, there's one person I was reading. He's like, yeah, I've summited 15 times. I'm like, what the fuck? You could buy a house with the amount of, like, money you use to, like, whatever. Anyway, so most people go with guides native to Nepal, also known as Sherpas. Nepal is a horribly poor country, and the tourism generated from Everest summits is the main source of income for those living there. So even, like, people who are scared of the mountain or don't want to go up the mountain Mm -hmm. will do it anyway because that pays for their entire family. Right. Because it is incredibly poor. Like, there's there's mm-hmm. nothing there. 
Um, um, and then I wrote that China does not allow summits from its side of the mountain. And this is mostly true. I think the Chinese government only allows individuals from China right, to probably. summit on their side. And then it, it's only for... Um, it's like a limited number. Whereas Nepal, it's, you know, fucking open season. Along with Sherpas, there are groups that will summit and their whole business is to get groups of people to the top and back. And we'll talk about a couple of these um, expedition groups. Some of these groups are led by professional mountaineers and one does not just show up and summit Everest. It takes weeks to allow your body to acclimate to the increased altitude. There is a base camp at the base of Everest, which is basically like headquarters. And then from here, there are four other camps, the last being at 7,158 meters just below the summit. And then there's the area of the mountain called the death zone. And it is exactly what it sounds like. Eventually, what happens is that you get so far above sea level that the oxygen becomes non-existent. In fact, there's only 8% oxygen above the 8,000 meters. Most cities, for reference, have about 20% oxygen in the air. What happens at this point is that your body just starts to die, literally. So once you're in this death zone area, hypoxia, which is oxygen deficiency, causes your lungs to overwork, your heart rate increases, and then your blood even starts to thicken. Symptoms caused by hypoxia are hallucinations, blurred vision, headaches, nausea, dizziness, and confusion. And the longer you were in the death zone, the less chance you have of surviving. And that's even with oxygen tanks, which most people will take oxygen tanks up the mountain and there are those that will try to do it without but you know that just adds an extra level of fucking crazy in my book but okay <laughs> you know well the people who are doing it that's what they're looking for is yeah, the, the you know extremism of it, like the extreme crazy of it is what they're after right i so one of the articles i was reading and they were there's a lot of psychology behind why people want to summit everest and the one guy who is a mountaineer and has summited he's like this is not an adrenaline sport he's like this takes time and there's no adrenaline when you're doing it. He's like, it's just a weird mental state where mm-hmm. you feel compelled that you have to do this, which, okay. <laughs> okay. So with the increased number of climbers every year due to lack of experience and training has made the climb more treacherous than it already is. There's basically one rope that is fixed to the top of the mountain that all of the climbers use. So oh my God. Like in the, in the season, uh, like before the climbers come, because the weather in Nepal around Everest, there is a very small window and it's in May. It's like one month. That's, mm-hmm. that's all the time you have. So prior to that, Sherpas will go up the mountain and they'll fix um, one rope. Oh my gosh. And that's the rope that you use to ascend and to descend. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so then there's also ladders. To help climbers over the giant ice crevasses and you can only go as fast as the person who was in front of you so right. you could be in a queue of 50 people that's crazy and that person at the top is obese can't breathe and is now having difficulty and I, i'm not kidding like you it may take you five minutes to just step one step and everyone behind you has to go that fast as well and they the, the pictures of the ladders so the one ice crevasse is mm-hmm. just an extended ladder with like a bungee cord in the middle oh for support. Gosh. And that's where everybody crosses. That's crazy. And then there's the Hillary step, which is way at the top, mm-hmm. like at the summit, which is just as small. And if you slip or fall, you're dead. So like it's 
again. Okay. Um, thanks to the increased population going up the mountain, the queue to summit has gotten ridiculous, which can cause many people to just sit within the death zone for a prolonged period of time. People lose body heat, they use up their oxygen, and they become increasingly exhausted due to the lack of oxygen to the brain. 2019 was one of the deadliest seasons on the mountain. 11 people died within one week of the mountain's history due to falls and attempting to descend and not making it. This was also when the photos of the queue went viral online, showing hundreds of climbers and crew members just standing on the mountain waiting to summit like they're on a ride at fucking Disneyland. Like, that's what I'm comparing it to. <laughs> like, it's, that is... This is awesome. And then I'm just going to note that, you know, with the increased traffic comes all the things that you'd imagine, like litter and garbage um, and human waste. Ugh. Human waste. It's, it's, so it's disgusting. It really is. Like, you, at any point on the mountain, Way to take this natural wonder and just... And just fuck it up, you yeah. know? But that is, that is uh, you know... Human the, he, the human condition, human right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at any point in time, you'll just see, like, bottles of oxygen just thrown to the side yeah. anyway okay so now let's get into the part that is the morbidity in my curiosity the number of bodies is still there the number of bodies uh that are still on everest and as i mentioned hundreds of people have died on everest and many of those bodies are still there those that didn't fall off the side of the mountain that is sadly many of them are used as like landmarks mm. yeah uh and so you're, maybe you're wondering why they don't just bring them down. So the ones that they are able to, like, try to get to, they have. Mm -hmm. But it costs a lot of money. Like, there was one American uh, that they brought off the mountain, and it costs somewhere up to 200000 to get wow. him off. So for every one body, it takes at least seven to ten more body, like, actual humans to get that one corpse off the mountain. So aside from cost, they're is a human element that you need more humans because that body's dead and everything on the mountain weighs more. Like right. the higher up you go, the more that it weighs. So the heavier that body is. And sometimes you have to dig. Right, because it's probably buried. Right. Yeah. Or affixed. <laughs> like, yeah. So um, depending on where the body is, they may just simply, they're not able to get to them. And there are a couple of them that are over like the side of the mountain and you can see them, but there's just no way in hell anybody is getting down there to get them. And like I said, they're just simply frozen to the mountain. There's no way to get them off there. They are now a part of the they mountain. They are part of the mountain now. So many people will cover the bodies and try to make like a makeshift burial with the rocks around them. Yeah. Um, while many of the others just end up covered in snow. So many of the bodies uh, are now infamous to the mountain. So let's go through some of them because Excellent. now that I've told you all the boring shit, <laughs> let's get. Um, okay, so. Let's the, get into the bodies. Let's, let's talk about some dead bodies. <laughs> First step on our corpse list. Um, the first one is m known to uh, a lot of people, and climbers have started to refer to him, they believe it's a him, as green boots due to right. the color of his climbing boots. And he is believed to be the body of climber, and I just want everyone to know I'm going to fuck up a lot of these names, so I don't mean any disrespect, <laughs> but other than, like, the two Americans, all of their names are beyond my, like, mental and tongue ability comprehension to say them okay the first climber was Tu sui wang palior i can say his last name and he, it's believed that he's the indian climber who attempted to summit in 1996 palior was caught in a storm that hit the mountain during his ascent and apparently his body was moved in 2014 hmm. but he was just below the summit in a cave oh wow 
and uh he was on his way down and like i like i mentioned the weather changes like at the drop of a hat and there was a massive snowstorm that just came in and he i think he was just trying to get shelter Mm -hmm. but you can't do that because you get trapped right especially at the top of the mountain like you can't just sit you have to keep going and he he sat and he ended up laying down and uh, he didn't make it. So, yeah. and like I said, it's believed that this is him. And that belief has just come out in like the past like mm-hmm. five years because up until this point, nobody knew who he was. Right. They just called him Green Boots because green boots. he's got these lime green um, mountaineering boots. Like they're not hiking boots. I think they're specifically for mountain climbing. I'm so. sure there's a real yeah. technical term for them <laughs> that I'm just not privy to because I'm not that cool. That's cool. They have a Okay, so one of the things I'm going to mention along the way is um, the families of these uh, climbers who, you know, we're talking about them in a very, like, morbid sense. Like, oh, they're just bodies on the mountain. But if this green boots person really is who they think that it is, his son, um, in the article that they did an interview in, he's like, well, if this is my dad... You know, I, he's like, I can't, I can't tell my mom because, yeah. uh, and especially I can't tell my mom that he's known as Green Boots because it would break her heart. Yeah. That he's not referenced by his name. He's just, just called Green Boots. Like, just another body on the mountain. Yeah. Right. And I think they've moved him further into the cave to try right, so to... so that it's not so... Right. And that was just recently because prior to that, uh, people were literally like stepping over him. Like mm-hmm. you had to go around him. So an American climber named David Sharp was on a solo trek up the mountain in 2006. It's believed he did summit and that he died on his ascent. Which is so depressing. Right. He was even uh, seen alive by several climbers. And some believed that he was just resting. But on their way down, he was, you know, just kind of there sitting in this cave area. And uh, people, like, either one didn't see him because he was far enough Mm -hmm. in the cave that he wasn't noticeable. Or the people who did see him thought he was just taking a rest um so uh yeah but uh, so the people who actually saw him they were on their way up and saw him and it wasn't until they were on their way down and he was still there that they're like okay i think that there's a problem and i just want to say that if you're a climber on this mountain you can try to help people that you find along the way but every minute you spend in the death zone is one minute closer to your death as well so you kind of take your life Right. And put it in even more risk by trying to help somebody. Because so then you both die and... Right. right. Because this particular, um, I don't want to call it a case, but this event caused a lot of uh, turmoil in like the media when they started writing about it. Like, mm-hmm. how can you just leave people there? I'm like, well, it's not so much that they wanted to leave him there. It's just there's only so much that you can do. So he was hypothermic. He'd been without oxygen and was suffering from frostbite and had frozen limbs. Although there were multiple teams that tried to help him off the mountain, he was unable to speak or stand. And eventually they had to leave him there. And his body also was hid uh, from view per his family. And then there was Rob Hall, whose death was one of those that were portrayed in the movie Everest. Did you ever see that? I think I did, actually. Yeah, it was crazy. And I, and I watched it and I'm like, I don't understand 
podcast. Anyway, okay. So Rob was a guide to his own guide company called Adventure Consultants. I can't even see this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did summit with some of his clients, and on the way down, he found another one of his clients named Doug Hansen, who was struggling on his way up the summit. Mm-hmm. So they must have broken up and were going up at different times. And um, so he's already gone up once, and he's on his way back down. And he's trying to help this guy. So he must be super exhausted. Sure. Because you've already done it once. So Doug had a Sherpa with him that was trying to get him to abandon his attempt. But this was, excuse me, his second attempt to summit. And the previous time he was 300 meters from the summit and he turned around. Mm. So he was just bound and determined that he was going to fucking do do it it this time. So Rob kind of took over, I guess, and helped Doug, and they did summit. However, this was the, the 1996 blizzard that I mentioned mm-hmm. before um, with Palior, um, and the conditions just turned and were absolutely awful. So Hall radioed for help because Doug was unconscious at this point. Another guy named Andy Harris started up the mountain with oxygen to help. Half a day later... Um, Doug radioed saying that um, Harris had reached them, but that Doug Hansen had died. Mm. And then he even lost Harris, who was the person that was up there. So there was a lot of confusion and a lot of scrambling. And eventually Rob died and his body is still on the mountain. Scott Fisher was another guide who also died in 1996 and is also portrayed in the same movie Everest. His company was called Mountain Madness, which is still a company that still brings people up to the mountain to this day. Um, Fisher had helped a sick friend descend the day before attempting his his group going up. So once they all summited, he was exhausted. He had his Sherpa go ahead of him for help, which the Sherpa did, and he came back with more oxygen to help, but they couldn't get him down the mountain. Another guide from the same group came up and attempted to help him, but by the time he got to him, he found Scott Fisher dead. And this guide covered his body out of respect. So, like, he he summited, like, twice. Wow. And on his way down, like, the second time, he basically just Just died from exhaustion. And this one, this is, this story, and maybe it's because I'm a mom, but I found absolutely fucking heartbreaking, and I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, so, uh, Hanolor... It's H-A-N-N-E-L-O-R-E. Hanalore? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, Schmatz and... No, this maybe this isn't the... This is not the, the, the mom. Hold on. I haven't gotten to her yet. This one's sad too. Anyway, and her husband, uh, Ger- Gerhard. See, the, there, people come from all over the world right. to summit this mountain. Yes. So some of these people have names which I cannot pronounce. And I'm very sorry. <laughs> like... Um, so these two were both experienced uh, mountaineers, and they attempted to summit in 1979. They split their group, Gerhard being the group in his group summited first with no problems, and then Hanor was group two. Her husband tried to keep her from summiting because the weather conditions were getting worse. Mm-hmm. She didn't listen. So her and her group ascended. Although they did reach the summit, they wouldn't make it back down. Hanora and another climber named Ray Gannett were exhausted and wanted to make shelter and rest. And despite warnings from the Sherpa that this would be fatal, they did it anyway. Ray died in the night. Oh my gosh. The rest of the group continued down uh, down with them as well as Hanor, but she became exhausted and sat down asking for water. A Sherpa attempted to help her and suffering from frostbite in his attempt to help her, he lost most of his toes and a finger on the process. 
Hanor died only 100 meters from base camp four, which wow. is the first base camp from the summit. Yeah. And she was only 100 meters away from it. Her body remained on Everest uh, for, for years, propped up on her backpack. And it is the creepiest. Like, she wow. just looks like she's chilling, honestly. Oh, my gosh. So over the years, the wind has stripped the body down to just the skull. And then in 1984, two uh, Nepal police, uh, Nepalese police died trying to recover her body. Hmm. The body is not currently visible, but it, it's believed that the winds either blew her over the north side or that she's just buried under the right. snow. But, I mean, I'm still one. I don't know if I'm going to show all these photos because you can find all of these photos of these bodies on the internet. And they're just so morbid that mm. I just don't know that I want to show them. But hers is... Her clothes are completely intact and you can see her, her pack and she's just leaning like on her, on her elbow, like just Mm -hmm. leaning back and she's just completely frozen in place. It's anyway. Okay. Crazy. So Shira Shai Chlorfine is a 33 year old Canadian who had been born in Nepal and there was a, a documentary about her that I actually watched. In 2012, she successfully summited, but she spent 25 minutes at the summit. 25 minutes. That's a long time. You're, you, you turn around and go back. You get to the top. You take your fucking pictures. Maybe five minutes. And you get your ass back down. You've been in the death zone for hours. Right. And you, if you're doing this, you've, ex- you've been, you know what you're doing. Like, you know the situation. You know what's called the death zone. You know about the oxygen. Like, it's not like you're, if you made it that far, you have and, an understanding. Yeah. And she was not an experienced hiker. Oh, Weird. Or like mountaineer. She was honestly, because she was born in Nepal, she felt she had a calling to do this because it was her homeland and it was something that she needed to do. I think she's from, well, she's from Canada. And she thought that if she hiked the mountain ranges that are in Canada, it would help her acclimate. Okay. And that she would be better. But there's, that's not how it works. <laughs> like... I mean, it's great to attempt to have some sort of conditioning, but when you're that far above sea level, it is not the same thing. And, mm-hmm. I, and unless you do it, I, I, from my understanding, I just don't think there's any way that you could possibly condition right. yourself to do it. So she had been climbing for 17 hours. It took her 17 hours to get all the way to the summit. Um, and then she succumbed to exhaustion and she died on the mountain. Oh my God. Her body was covered in a Canadian flag, and I think it was a year later, um, her body was actually retrieved. Oh, wow. Yeah. It took a lot of manpower because they had to drag it down to one of the lower base camps mm-hmm. so a helicopter could actually fly in, and then a helicopter swooped in and took her, and she's now um, buried in Canada, I believe. Okay. This is the one that breaks my heart. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So Frances Arsentive and her husband, Sergei, summited in 1998. Frances wanted to be the first woman to summit without the use of oxygen, because why the fuck not, right? Due to the prolonged time frame of summiting and the changing weather, Sergei had lost Frances making it back to camp, and she wasn't there. So they did summit, mm-hmm. and somewhere on the way down, he lost her. Got it. So... The idea here is I think she felt safe with her husband because he was considered like a snow leopard. He just had this natural ability to move up the mountain and through the snow that I think she felt that she would be safe, that she would be fine. So he gets back to base camp and she's not there. 
So he grabs oxygen and he heads back up the mountain to try to find her because, you know, the weather's shitty and she's out there alone with no oxygen. A climbing team from uh, Uzbekistan, I can't say this country's name. Uzbekistan. Thank you. Were attempting to summit when they found her still alive, but suffering from frostbite um, only a few hundred meters from the summit. So she has barely made it down, and that's where she got stuck. Wow. Um, So they gave her oxygen, and they attempted to help her down, but she wasn't able to stand because she's probably slowly starting to freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, So they attached her to a rope, and they tried pulling her down, but they had to abandon her in order to save their own lives. Right. As I mentioned, this is really hard for people to do. And I think they... They abandoned their attempt to summit in order to help her. Oh, wow. So um, on their way back, they found Sergey, who was on his way to find her. So that was the last time that Sergey was found, that was seen. Then another couple who were attempting their summit the, the next day found her, and she was still alive. Her oxygen had run out, and she'd removed her gloves. She was talking, but was repeating, like, she was just repeating, the, like, the same things, but she wouldn't respond to them, and she wasn't even right. able to move. And what happens is um, their hands get so cold that the cold starts to burn. So, because they're they confused. They take their gloves off because they think they're hot. Yep, yeah. they think their hands are burning, so they took their gloves off. She took her gloves off. Um, so, for more than an hour, they tried to rescue her, but without her being able to move, it really just wasn't possible. Oh, wow. She eventually died, and she was given the nickname Sleeping Beauty by Climbers. Okay. Because her, the way that her body was, she was just laying there. Like, that was it. She was in perfect view, and she was just laying. Like, just just laying. Um, Sergey disappeared, and he was never seen again after the Uzbek team last saw him. So oh, wow. it's believed that he fell off the mountain. Yeah. Which is never a good thing. Oh, wait, no, he, wait. His A year later, his body was found lower down and believed that he'd fallen, and I guess he's still there. Francis's body was recovered by the same climber who attempted to help her off. So in 2007, Ian Woodall covered her in an American flag, tucked a teddy bear under her arm, whispered a personal message from her son, who was 11 when his Aww. mother tried to summit, and then they slowly lowered her body off over the North Face. Mm-hmm. So what's sad about this is... Um, so Ian was the sec- him and his wife were the second people to find her, and he just felt compelled that he had to go back and remove her from the um, the mountain. And he says that he had a message from her son, whose name is Paul. But Paul says that he was never aware that this was even taking place, oh. and that he's an adult now. But that he wished that somebody would have told him because he wanted to be a part of it. Oh, And yeah. he's not, like, him and his family aren't bitter or mad that, like, any of this took place. He just wanted to be a part of it. And sure. the weird part was is he knew his mom was dead. So when he was 11, he had a nightmare that his mom was on the mountain and that it would there was just, like, crazy snowstorms happening all around her. And then he got the news, and he's like, I already know. Oh, wow. Yeah, so wasn't that fucking heartbreaking? Like, this woman left her son at home. Like, and that just kind of, and a lot of these, all of these people have, like, have families. Like, they either have husbands, or they have children, or they have both. But they have families, and they leave them behind to do this, knowing that. that, There's a really strong chance you're going to die. Yes, and I just, I don't understand the mentality, because I, anyway, I just don't get it. So the last morbid thing about dead bodies that I'm going to discuss is actually about the first person ever to attempt to climb 
Everest. And that's George Mallory. Mm -hmm. In June of 1924, he was on his third attempt to summit the mountain. It's believed that him and his partner that he chose to summit with him, whose name is Andrew Irvine, uh, based off their last known location, they believe that they actually did summit the mountain. So the last people were basically at the base of the mountain using telescopes to look up to try to find them. And they saw them just below the summit area. So in 1999, Conrad Anker found, um, I put Hillary's, but <laughs> Mallory's body just below what is known as the Hillary Step, which mm -hmm. is like the last big obstacle to get to the summit. And they were able to identify the remains from his clothing because his name was sewn on the tag. Oh, wow. So due to the fracture that was on his leg, it's believed that Mallory fell. Although much of the clothing had been stripped away from uh, weather, his body was actually very well preserved by the extreme cold. And it's the craziest thing. That is like, crazy. He, you can see, like, texture in his skin. Um, his bone, like, through, like, where there was, like, he had, a like, an open fracture. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see all of it. And most of his clothing was still there. Like, his back was bare. And he, it looks like he, he's on his belly. And it looks like he slid. Because, you know, he probably broke yeah. his leg and slid down and then yeah. died. Um, they, you, but this body you can't see anymore because um, uh, Anchor and his team, they, they buried the body under some rocks. But he did make a YouTube video. He had footage of it, and you can find the, the discovery on YouTube. His Andrew Irvine, though, they have no idea where he is. Mm. There's some stipulation that he is closer to the summit, but he's on, like, the China side of the oh, mountain. Maybe. And while they were searching for him, they found other bodies. Right. Um, <laughs> a people that they can't identify. So sure. it's not like people are carrying their wallets with them. So, yeah. So these are the most known bodies on the mountain. There are others that have gone unidentified or missing climbers that are assumed dead and they've never been found. And as the mountain starts to thaw more and the ice and snow melt, there are more and more bodies starting to show on the mountain. Which is so fucked up. Thanks, global warming. Yeah. and I'm sorry, climate change. Well, thankfully, the Nepal government, um, they have crews that will go up the mountain and they clean up. Like, they're the cleanup crew. Oh, wow. And I think it was, I don't know if I wrote it down and I, I don't think I did. Um, it was like, oh my God, 8,000 kilograms or whatever kg is because i'm american i don't understand that shit it's kilograms yeah of uh human waste <clears throat> and then three times as much just litter and waste that Ugh. they bring off the mountain it's disgusting and part of the cleanup crew is if they find bodies and body parts mm -hmm. that they bring them down to <sighs> yeah so it's just like a, a fucking frozen graveyard it's just a massive graveyard and people keep going. And they keep going, yeah. So like I've already mentioned, I don't really understand why anyone would want to risk their life to make it to the top of the mountain. But it's a sure fact that people are willing to do this and it doesn't look like they will stop anytime soon. Although the mountain did close in 2020 due to COVID, which was, must be, I bet fucking Mount Everest was like, finally. I get a break. Finally. Nobody's leaving trash. I'm like, I'm just going to chill by myself. Go away. Um, the Nepal government did reopen the mountain, and there are people who have risked COVID to climb to the top of it. And yes, there were many climbers that ended up having COVID. They had COVID at base camp. 
They didn't know they had COVID. So a lot of times when people summit, they'll end up with, you know, like a pneumonia or a bronchitis. So they're coughing and there's no real way to differentiate. So they'd summit, they'd come back down, they'd test, boom, they have COVID. So great. Now there's COVID at the top of fucking Mount Everest. Um, (laughs) um, Since the events of 2019, it became more public that the number of people trying to summit at one time was incredibly unsafe and dangerous. So they have started regulating how many climbers can be on the mountain trying to summit at one time. Excellent. For now, these are the stories of the climbers who succumb to the mountain. I'm sure in the next few years, we will find more people uncovered and more people identified as to whom they are. Because like I said, a lot of people have gone missing on the mountain. They Mm -hmm. haven't found them and they're just presumed dead. I will mention that at the base where people fall off is just a giant fucking glacier that goes way back down in. So there is nothing down there. It's like a garbage disposal of ice. <laughs> so if you fall down there, and I'm sure many people have. Oh my God. It's like the body pit. It really, really is. And that's that's it's a fucked up. a very cold body pit. It is. And it's a fucked up way of saying that. But so I'm just going to end with a quote, quote from George Mallory, who was the first person to summit Everest. But when I say our sport is a hazardous one, I do not mean that we climb mountain, that when we climb mountains, there is a large chance that we shall be killed but that we are surrounded by dangers which will kill us if we let them. Yeah, okay. And they did. And they did. They did. They did. They, they totally so did. did. Yeah. And then if you look at what George Mallory and Andrew were wearing when they summited, it is hilarious. And then you look at the shit that people are wearing mm-hmm. now, and I'm like, wow. It's crazy, too. The you know, well, how much things have advanced in technology and, like, the yeah. fact that they even did it is amazing. Yeah, but, like... I mean, props to the Sherpas because they're the ones that are doing it all the damn time. And they're, like, they're basically pack mules. Mm-hmm. They, carry they carry everything up. Yeah, like, they're the so ones that crazy. are setting up all of the base camps. So there's, I think, four base camps. So there's the main base camp and then there's, like, four more at the top. I think I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that set all that up. And it's still luxury, People are not, like, slumming it because they're climbing a fucking mountain. No. There are kitchens. They have (laughs) coffee. They've got meat prepared for them. They've, you know, they've got, like, a buffet of fucking breakfast. I think the base camp that is just below the summit maybe isn't that great. Probably not. Um, And then you end up having to pee in bottles if you pee at all because you can't can't risk taking your suit off. yeah, so it's pretty luxurious. It's not like yeah, we're spoiled. We're just fucking spoiled. Yeah. And then we create like a massive amount of waste and that's what happens. Yeah. So anyway, that's my weird story. It's, I liked it. It's I weird. I liked it a lot. It's not like our typical no, MO. It's good. it's good. But it's just something that absolutely fascinates me. So if you hear this and you're curious... Literally just Google Mount Everest bodies. Boom. And they'll all come up. And the rabbit hole will open for you. Right. And you can dive right in. And you (laughs) can see all of the things that I'm discussing. And um, yeah. And maybe you'll find your morbid curiosity with it too. Who knows? Okay. So I decided that I needed to step up my game this week and have a title. Oh, yeah! always has titles, and, and I never have a title. I did not have one this week. Well, and I found the perfect story for... I know, and I thought about that. <laughs> I have the perfect story for a title, right? Um, so I found one that's going to work. It's called The Brothers Grimm. 
Oh, I love it. Okay. Because this story <laughs> is about two brothers, Stephen and Carrie Stainer, and it is absolutely insane. It's grim. It is grim, it's actually. Grim. It's really grim. Um, it's been described as the story of a hero and a monster, but the reality is much more complicated than that. It's like a Cain and Abel situation? <sighs> Not exactly. You'll okay. see. Um, but the amount of tragedy in this one story, this family, mm. is just it's insane. crazy. It's overwhelming. But okay. So we're going to start with Stephen. Stephen was the third of five children, including his older brother, Carrie, who we will talk about later. Okay. Um, and he grew up in Merced, California, which is a small community just outside of Yosemite National Park. In 1972, seven-year-old Stephen was approached by a man named Irvin Edward Murphy, who's on his way home from school, and this guy comes up and says, I'm gathering, you know, he's passing out, like, religious pamphlets, and he's like, I'm gathering donations for our local church, you know, do you think your mom would be interested in donating something? And mm -hmm. he said, yeah, I'm sure my mom would be interested. So at that point, he agrees to get in the car with this guy, and they proceed to get into this big white Buick. Oh, no. And this is the life-changing decision that he makes, basically, because the person driving this car is Richard Parnell. Richard Parnell is, at this point, he's already been convicted um, as, like, a, like a, a sex crime, basically. Mm -hmm. So he drove the Stephen to his cabin in, like, a nearby kind of, like, wooded area, this tiny little horrible one-room cabin. And it turns out the cabin, like, they don't really, I never really found out more about this, but the cabin was really close to his maternal grandmother's, or grandfather's house, which is crazy. Yeah. But anyway, so when he first gets there, um, Parnell begins molesting Stephen that day um, and doesn't start raping him for until seven days later. Oh, my God. But at that point, he's convinced Stephen that his family no longer wants him, <gasps> that he's gained legal custody of him, <gasps> that he's, like, a burden because they have a bunch of kids, burden to the family. And he has, you know, basically groomed him to this point in, like, yeah. so Stephen stays. And that's, he becomes, like... Um, oh, my God. Richard Parnell becomes, like, his dad. It's, like, his father figure at this point. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a second. I did want to go back really quick and talk about the accomplice, Urban Edward Murphy, because he comes up again. And Urban was um, working with Parnell at Yosemite, like they worked together. Mm -hmm. um, and he was just a really trusting, naive, and they called him kind of simple-minded guy, because um, Parnell had passed himself off as this aspiring minister, and they needed to find the a boy, a young boy to raise right in the religious way, you know, and he convinced this Murphy character that like, you know, yeah. So kind of like as a ploy, you yeah. know? So like, I'm not saying the guy's innocent, just, but he was right. definitely being used right along, yeah, yeah. along the way. And that's how they came upon Stephen. And that's how he ends up getting kidnapped. So uh -huh. Stephen, um, Parnell begins calling him Dennis Gregory Parnell, um, which that was his actual middle name. So they retained that in his birth date and they moved all over that area of California, and he was enrolled in schools over the next several years. Was his parents not looking for they him? They did look for him, but there was like they never found him. Um, um, Parnell was smart, and it's the 70s. They don't have the technology, and they yeah. don't, like it was much easier to just kind of pop somebody in with a new name and go, hey, you yeah. know, and they didn't stay in any place for too long. Parnell had a lot of, you know, just fly-by-night jobs, that type of thing. Um, and also what happens is that he basically, you know, with all the sexual abuse that's happening, 
he lets Stephen do whatever he wants. He's drinking, he's smoking, he can go out and do whatever he wants. He lives, like, at a, as a very young teen, he is, li- like, not even a teen, but, like, early teens. Mm-hmm. Like, he's living this very free existence and able to pretty much do whatever he wants. Um, and I think that that was a, another way of controlling him. It, you yeah. know, giving him the freedom is actually just, you know, because I'm sure a lot of his friends didn't have that kind of freedom. Right, and, they couldn't do those things. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, it was a really weird thing, too. They mentioned a couple of things that I just wanted to bring up. So in his life, like, with Parnell, they had this dog. And, like, Parnell's mom gave Parnell the dog, and its name was Queenie, and Stephen mentions it later in interviews and how much he loved this dog. And, like, this guy's mom didn't even know that he had this guy, kid. this kid, like, you know, there, right? Oh, my God. Um, another point, a woman named Barbara Mathias goes and lives with them for, like, 18 months. And she, like, I mean, Stephen claims that she raped him, too. But, um, like, the whole thing is so crazy because she just, like, later claims that she's like, yeah, I didn't even know that he was raping him, and I just thought he was his son. And, like, so, like, all these people kind of see this as very normal. Like, they have this kind of messed up relationship, but normal nonetheless. I don't know. It's really weird. Um, And Parnell in 1975 had tried to get her to help him lure in another boy oh god um because like you know steven's getting older yeah and he also has steven try to help him get another boy <gasps> and steven says that the reason that it never worked is because he did it like on purpose failed yeah yeah um but parnell's like well he's not gonna be a good accomplice so he basically gets one of his friends like to help him um and i'm gonna get to that in a second but i have to tell you this quote so crazy and it kind of speaks to the whole theme of the story mm-hmm. right so there's interviews with his um, Stevens classmates while he was in high school, okay. living with Parnell, mm-hmm. like in captivity, right? Oh I'm doing Cody fingers, yeah. right? Um, and he 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 appeared a well-adjusted kid. He had a great personality, said Lori Duke, who dated him in high school. Oh wow! But knew him as Dennis. He was spunky. You could see he wanted to be normal and hang out with other kids. So he had this very normal high school. Right. life okay so he's in high school making friends having girlfriends like it's so crazy right um he's trying yeah he's doing like it'll make sense later when we talk about his brother because he's doing really well mm. um adjusting to life considering what's happening to him. yeah yeah so um they do eventually decide that they need he needs to get a younger boy so um they get one of Stephen's friends, which is crazy, named Randall Poorman, to help him kidnap uh, a five-year-old boy named Timmy White oh from Ukiah, California. And at first, um, Stephen was really upset about the boy being there and going through, you know, what mm-hmm. he went through and seeing the whole thing. Um, so eventually, he decides to help him escape. So on March first, nineteen eighty, uh, while Parnell is away at his nighttime security job. You know, because he left him home alone all the time. Um, Steven Stanner leaves with Timmy White and they hitchhike um, into the town where he's from. And they can't find the kid's house because, you know, he's five. But, oh, God. Um, so they go to the police station. And Steven has no intention of going in the police station. He's like, shows up at the police station and tells the boy to go inside. But the police see both of them and bring them in. Oh. And that's how it all comes to light. He had no intention. Yeah. Of, turn like going in himself right yeah he only wanted to help the boy help the boy yeah which again i mean this goes to some really deep psychological issues and insanity that's going on in this guy's brain 
Um, so by the next morning, the whole thing's open to the world. Um, Parnell is arrested on suspicion of abducting both boys. And they do the background check and find his sodomy condition, conviction from 1951. Um, they're reunited with their families, and it's, like, all over the news. Like, it's this big thing, and he's, you know, the hero that mm-hmm. yeah. saved Timmy, right? Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about that in a second. I just want to give you the whole Parnell part before we can be done talking about him, because he's horrible. Yeah. Um, so this is really shitty. Um, he mm-hmm. was tried in 1981. And convicted of kidnapping White and Stainer in two separate trials, but was sentenced to seven years and paroled after five. What? He was not charged with any of the sexual assaults on Stainer or the other boys because most of them occurred outside the jurisdiction of the Merced County Prosecutor or were then outside the statutes of limitations. And in Mendocino County, where they lived for a long time, that's where, like, he went to high school. Stephen went to high school in Mendocino County. Um, there, the prosecutors just didn't want to pursue it. And so he was out in five years. Oh, my. And everybody was appalled. Um, Is this where the story Freddy Krueger comes from? Because he moves into their town and the, like, the families just fucking tear him up and throw him in a fire? No, because oh. Parnell just goes on to, like, exist. Um, so Murphy, the guy, the, the original guy that was helped abduct mm-hmm. Stainer... And Poorman, the high school kid that helped abs- that helped with, um, abduct White, um, they were convicted of lesser charges, and they both claimed to know nothing of the sexual assaults that were going on. Um, the woman who stayed with them, Barbara Mathias, was never arrested, and Stainard, Stainer actually remembered the kindness and called um, Murphy Uncle Murphy. You know, he said he'd shown him he showed him a lot of kindness, and they he felt that they were both under Parnell's manipulation, like he was. Yeah. A victim as well. Um, so, anyway, at this point, they did change one law in California after this to allow consecutive prison terms in similar abduction cases so that he would have gotten, like, a longer, longer sentence. sentence yeah. It's still not enough, but whatever. Um, so, at this point, Steven's the hero. They did made-for-TV movies about him. He was interviewed on all the big, yeah. you know... And it's the 80s. It's not com- quite like today, but, like, you know, he was... Yeah, like, yeah. like I said, made-for-TV movie, the whole nine, Yeah, right? yeah, which was the thing back then. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... Daytime TV. Right. Yeah, interviews. He's, so this is how he becomes the, the hero. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... All right, so after returning to his family, um, Stainer had a really hard time adjusting. I bet. So he also had couldn't go out smoking and drinking and doing all the stuff that he was always like able to do. Yeah. Um, so that was part of it. And also there was a lot of misunderstanding about sexual abuse and grooming and why he didn't just leave and all of those. So he's things. being blamed. Yeah. So in an interview with Newsweek, and this is really really sad. Um, shortly after his escape, Stainer said, "I returned almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should have come home. Would I have been, would I have been better off if I didn't? Oh my and God. so that was really his mentality about it. Like, he didn't think that he should be, you know, he should have come home, basically. All right, so... Um, 
Stainer underwent, like, Stephen went through some counseling when mm-hmm. he got home, but he didn't get a lot of counseling, um, and he never really disclosed all the details of what happened oh. um, with, you know, his abuse with Parnell. Like, he, he went over some of it, but never in detail. Oh, God. Um, in a 2007 interview, his sister, uh, you know, looking back on it, said that he didn't seek any more counseling because their father said he didn't need any. Oh, God. And she added that Stephen got on with his life, but he was pretty messed up. And he was bullied by all the other children at school for being molested and, like, questioning his sexuality. And so he eventually dropped out. Like, he had a better time in high school when he was... Just normal. When he was kidnapped. Yeah. Than he did when he came home. Right. Like... That's awful. Yeah, it was so bad that he dropped out. Kids are so um, mean. Yeah. And like I said earlier... Put this in perspective this was the you know the early 80s our understanding of those types of things is really you know on a large scale not really understood right um anyway he began drinking frequently and he was eventually kicked out of his family home oh my god and his fa- his relationship with his father was strained like they never resolved their issues because um it gets even more tragic in 1985, he married a uh, 17-year-old Jody Edmondson, and they had two children, a daughter, Ashley, and a stun- uh, son, Stephen Jr. And he, you know, he did do some work with child abduction groups and trying to help, you know, like, tell people about personal safety and, you yeah. know, spoke to children and stuff like that. Um, but his life was pretty messed up. He wasn't doing great. Um, he was working at a pizza shop. You know, and in 1989, on September 16th, he was driving home from work on his motorcycle and was in a hit and run and was killed. Oh, my God. Yep. Um, So the alleged driver of the car was later identified by witnesses, and he probably got a longer prison sentence than the guy. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't actually find out, but in my mind, I, I feel like I know. Yeah. Um, but he had this his funeral. 500 people attended, including um, 14, at that time, 14-year-old Timmy White was a pallbearer at his funeral. Um. So um, at this point, Parnell's been free. Got to go back to him. I got to finish with him. Fucker. Um, and he's 72. In 2004, he's 72 years old. And he's being treated by, like, a home health nurse. Like, she's coming to his house. And she knows who he is. And she, he asks her to go get him a young boy. <gasps> So she reports him to the police and he was arrested and Timmy White came back and testified against him. Um, they even took Stainer's statement and read it in court. And right. he went to prison and died in prison in 2008. So, but he was free from like 1980. Uh, doing God knows what. Not doing what. math, but yeah 20, yeah, 20 years of being free and doing, I'm sure, horrible things. And he, Ugh. you know, obviously didn't just manipulate children. He manipulated other adults. people, adults, yeah. you know, to help him. Um, so this was, you know, the story of the kidnapped kid who saved the other kidnapped kid. And obviously though, it's not so straightforward. Like, you know, I, I didn't get a chance, but I kind of wanted to watch the made for TV movie because I'm Um, sure they portrayed it in this very different. Yeah. Positive, but dramatic light. light. So let's talk about brother number two. Okay. So Carrie. Brother, he's the older brother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the older brother whose younger brother was kidnapped. Okay. And you asked me, but I didn't really go into it. But, yes, the family looked for Stephen. They did the whole, you know... Missing child, child line egg. Yeah. Egg, and Milk carton, I mean. Right. And, you know, he wasn't found. But he... Um, so, Carrie kind of grew up under this whole, you know, drama, basically, right. of this <laughs> happening. 
Um, but when they before he was taken, Carrie and Stephen got along really well. They were really close, and they were both seemingly very normal kids prior to <laughs> right. prior to craziness happening. So, um, and like most reports indicate, he was absolutely devastated after his brother was kidnapped. Like, there's this report which I'm like in my mind comes from the TV movie but I don't know this that he like wished upon a star for his brother to come back that you know? sounds like a made for TV movie doesn't it it so, really like, does I read it, like in three different articles and I'm like really though mm, I bet you're just pulling this from the movie but um so as I mentioned before his kidnapped brother was having this pretty outwardly normal high school experience and Carrie was not Carrie was having a rough time of it um there are reports that he wore a hat all the time because he started pulling his hair out. Oh, God. Um, he exhibited, he also exhibited some other, and it wasn't just about that. Like, he was depressed and unhappy, but he also started exhibiting some really uncomfortable behaviors that made people uncomfortable. Okay. Like, he was not okay. Yeah. Um, he exposed himself to his sister's friend. Oh. And he, like, he was. He seemed to have a compulsion to try to get close to women or be sexual with them, but couldn't have, like, an emotional attachment or relationship mm-hmm. with them. Like, he wasn't he wasn't good with the ladies at all. It almost makes it sound like he was the one that was, like, molested, you would think. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, someone who's looked at this actually says, you know, the contrast between these two brothers, like, this, the two cases, the contrast between these two brothers is surreal. They said, you have one brother who's been subjected to just unspeakable horror for years, but by all appearances, he's happy-go-lucky, jovial kid with a girlfriend, and you have the other brother who's left at home, has no interest in girls, no interest in people, and wasn't just that he was a loner, he was a creepy loner. So, like, exactly how you would think maybe Steven would have acted in school. Right. Because, you know, when they, like, I do all the... um, protection of minors stuff mm-hmm. and they tell you what to look for yeah the kind of behaviors that carrie is, is showing it, yeah. is what you would look for not the kid that's coming to school with his girlfriend and right. being, you know like, yeah so it's really it's just a crazy thing so we're gonna jump ahead a few years and this is after steven died okay right. so like they came back and they didn't get along I, I shouldn't I shouldn't skip too far. They didn't get along very well. Mm-hmm. Like Stephen moved back into the house and Carrie and him, they just they didn't see they were very different. They didn't get along. Yeah. I think Carrie they mentioned a couple of times in different articles I read that he felt like um, kind of pushed aside because, you know, the hero came home and it was this whole thing. But of course, you know, um, I mean not that he had a good time at home either. Like both of right. them were just pretty unhappy. So like their close relationship never got better like right. they never yeah. you know rebonded um, exactly and i mean for a bunch of reasons obviously right like not defending any of it just just that's the way it was yeah yeah so anyway steven died and at the time carrie was living with his uncle jesse and right at this like he's there living with this guy and his uncle jesse gets shot and killed in his home like in a break-in what the fuck right so like <laughs> This just oh happens right after his brother dies unexpectedly in a motorcycle accident. Who had been um, kidnapped and molested for years. Right. And at this point, Carrie claims that um, he was molested by this uncle, but, like, nobody's really ever verified it. The guy's dead, so. Which yeah. would re- explain some of it, like, when he was younger that he had been molested by this uncle. I don't know. Like, or he saw how much attention it got his brother. Exactly. So let's exactly. try to recycle this story. So, um, and at this point, 
So at this point, Carrie's reported to have attempted suicide in 1991. Um, he was arrested in 97 for possession of marijuana and meth, and the charges were dropped. Um, but he wasn't doing well, obviously. Yeah. Um, another uncle, must have a lot of uncles, reported that he, uh, he had had a couple of nervous breakdowns, one of which was fairly violent. Um, he said, I felt like jumping in a truck and driving it through the shop and killing the boss and killing everybody in the office and then torching the place. Oh, my God. Um, and that's when his friend's like, dude, you need to go see somebody. You need help, yeah. Yeah, and he did, but not really. Like, he did, and then he just Stopped. took a different route. Okay. He decided to go get a job in Yosemite. He loved the outdoors. He loved Yosemite. And so he just decided that that's what he was going to do. And in 1997, he was hired as a handyman at Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portel, California, just outside the Highway 140 entrance of Yosemite National Park. Okay. And um, his favorite hobbies, are you ready for this? Hunting. Smoking some pot and sunbathing nude. Okay. And he often went to nudist colonies. Like, I mean, that, that was does, his thing. Doesn't sound so bad. But, like, instead of getting the professional help he needed, he kind of just decided to, like, get off the grid even further. Um, hmm. So he's out there for um, working there for two years when Carol Sund, Sund, her teenage daughter Julie Sund, and her friend Silvina Peloso come to stay one night at the, the lodge that he works in in February of 1999. And that night, he talked his way into their room under oh. the guise of fixing a leak. Oh, God. And sexually assaulted both girls and brutally murdered all three. <gasps> um, at the time, the FBI agent handling the case, so they didn't find the bodies right away. There were no bodies. Um, the, that was the largest search ever that they had done in, in the park, uh, looking for these bodies of these three women. And they were found in, eventually found... Carol and Peloso, the older, um, the older two, were found in the trunk of a tr- of a the Pontiac rental car that they had. And it was all burned out, basically. Oh God! Um, so he was like trying to cover up his tracks. Yep, the bodies were burned beyond recognition. They had used dental records, and then the police received a note with like a handwritten note with a map showing where the the daughter's body was, and the note read, "We had fun with this one." <gasps> And investigators went to the location, depicted on the map, and found the remains of Julie, whose throat had been cut. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. So, um, detectives do interview Carrie after the the killings, but he, um, because he worked there. You know, they interviewed everyone. And he was basically not a suspect. He was very calm. It was completely, you know, he seemed fine he was because he was a quiet guy that kept to himself and nobody yeah. really thought much of it um so five months passed with enough without anything else happening and then um wait quick question yeah was the body of julie burned or did they just find her as just she was her throat cut so there's got to be evidence there somewhere but i guess this is what year yeah, is this? this is like 99 so we're not really yeah too far into dna and all of that mm-hmm. stuff yet and they're still investigating like they're okay. still looking into it and with the next one, there's plenty of evidence. So, um, at this point, uh, one of the employees, um, oh, never mind. Sorry. Sorry, I, fuck, I fucked no, you up. you're good. <laughs> um, so five months passed, nothing happens. Everybody's kind of like, it's fine. It's fine. And then, um, and then there's another one. So, um, basically 
on July 21st, 1999, Joey, or Joey, I think it's Joey Armstrong, she's 26. Um, she works at Yosemite, and she was like a naturalist that taught kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he was interviewed later, um, Carrie says when he saw her, it just ignited his urge to kill again. What? And so after her friends reported her missing, police found signs of a struggle at her cabin. And they found her body a half mile away with her head removed. Oh, my God. Which was found several feet away in the water. Um, but at this time, this time, Stanner, which I think you all figured out is the one who did it, he left substantial amount of evidence in and around her cottage, including his car, um, was seen by people that was there. So yeah. he became the prime suspect at this point, And they go and find him. And they find him at his favorite nudist colony. Um, take him into, uh, in for questioning and he basically confessed right away. They take him in for questioning and, um, it was described as if he was reading a soup label. Just tells everything that happened with all, with first with the, the latest victim and then eventually confesses to the murder of the other three. Oh my God. Um, and so somebody asked him, you know, like if he wanted to talk. Um, about it or like if it could be interviewed basically yeah. like reporters and they, mm. he's like yeah well I want you to you know go make a movie of the week about my story <gasps> you know oh my so, god um, anyway his vehicle not only was seen there but and his confessions because sometimes they stay don't mm-hmm. stay um, there was tons of physical evidence because he did claim um, that he it was or he did plead not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyers claimed that the Stainer family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness manifesting itself not only in the murders but his obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, Dr. Jose Silva, Arturo Silva, testified that Stainer had OCD, mild autism, and paraphilia, which is the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects such objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. Um, but he was nevertheless found sane and convicted of four counts of first-degree murder by a jury on August 27th, 2002. Um, and he was given the death penalty, and he remains on death row because they're not really executing anyone in California these days. But, um, yeah, so to this day, he's on, he's on death row. So, yeah. I hope they didn't make a movie of the week about him, right? I don't think so. Oh, good. I'm sure there's, like, an ID channel special. Mm. But still. My God. But, yeah, the brother's grim. That's awful. Right? Like, one has so many bad things that happen to him, but leads a normal life. And one has nothing, but is just pissed off and jealous because his brother had so many bad things happen and got attention. Although, it does sound like the dad's an ass. Oh, yeah. So, like, even though he was the one that was home... Something tells me things weren't great. What about their mom? I don't know. Nothing much about her. Yeah. Like, at all. Um, so, I'm not, like, again, no excuses, but, you know, I do believe that there's a lot of things that go into making someone into that kind of, you know. Crazy. Yeah. When yeah. he's, like, pulling out his hair in high school. But, you know, obviously the family didn't, you know, dad doesn't believe in counseling or getting help. Right. So, if he would have actually been, you know, so when it was, like, later when he had those mental breakdowns, if he mm-hmm. probably went to a facility and got treatment, maybe could have been okay. If but, he like, wanted it. But it didn't sound like he wanted any help at all. I know, but if they would have done it when he was a kid... Yeah. He could have been on a journey to better mental health, is all I'm saying. Like, 
but if your kid's same... pulling out their hair yeah. and you're not doing anything about it, like, to me, that's a parenting issue. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. But your kid's pulling out his hair so much that he has to wear a hat. Like, yeah. I think you probably should, like... And his one brother had a family. Yeah. And, like, and he died on a fucking motorcycle. I know. It's crazy. That Craziest is... story. I couldn't... I had to do it. It wasn't even on my list at all. Yeah. But, like, I saw an article about it and it popped up and I was just, like, this craziest... This is meant to be. I gotta yeah, do this. Yeah, it's the craziest story. Like... That really is. Yeah, like, I don't... Yeah, no excuses for Carrie. I don't mean it like that. But I also go, what the fuck? Like, your kid's this messed up in high school. Like, he's the creepy kid in high school and you're just not doing anything? Yeah. Like, that drives me crazy. Like help your kids it makes me wonder if he didn't assault other women throughout his lifetime and just nobody discussed it nobody or talked knew. about it yeah yeah or talked about it i mean he did admit to a lot of things like he exposing himself and like you know but he definitely had issues with intimacy and so like you know he didn't know how to express himself with women in a way I mean, that was like could he not just go get a fucking prostitute i don't know i mean you don't have to have any emotional connection there it is literally a business transaction Put down your money. Let's do it. Done. It seems like life would have been so much easier that way. Yeah. I just think that that family is pretty... Messed up. Messed up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I saw that the sisters did that interview, and I'd love to hear more, honestly. Like, Um, what, you know, let's, like, hear about... Because, obviously, they didn't think too fondly of dad, because they didn't even think the kid that had been raped for how many years needed counseling... Yeah. Oh my god! You know what I mean, I know, like, right? So, like, I mean, and he wouldn't obviously. even hug his kid. Yeah, like, what the fuck's that all about? Like, Ugh. yeah, so yeah, not cool. No, that was a good story. That was awesome. Perfect title. Thanks. So that's this week. Yeah, it's done. Another week in the books. Woohoo! I have no idea what I'm doing next week. Me either. I had like a whole list for October and I was really prepared and now I'm not. So I made a list for October and then completely didn't follow it. Well, I also have one that I want to do, but it's so big that I need to have enough time to to prepare it. So that's what she said. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so I will find something. I'm sure I always do. Yeah, we will. Because, you know, those Internet rabbit holes are out there waiting for us. So many of them. But, yeah, so uh, follow us on social media, 4M Podcast. Uh, email us, mystery... I don't remember our email all of a sudden. Mystery Moms Podcast at Gmail. That sounds right. That sounds about right. Fuck. Um, <laughs> and then share with your friends. Make sure you like us. Make comments if we post stuff on Facebook. I think that's so funny. Everyone will like our posts. Mm-hmm. But then I'll say, comment below. But, like, maybe, like, one or two people will say something. I'm like, but what about, like, the 15 other people who liked it? Like, say something, please. Anyway. Let us know what you think. I know. Like, just comment. It's great. Anyway, it's fine. Um, And that's it. All right. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Stay warm. Yeah. Winter is here. Winter is coming. <laughs> Your moms love you. Bye. Bye.